This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. You'll find more information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website, churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. And welcome back to the Church Society podcast. I'm Lee Gatiss, the Director of Church Society, and I'm joined today by Associate Director, Dr. Ros Clark. Hi, Ros. Hello. Now, Ros, are you are you quite tired? Because you had quite a busy week last week. I did have a busy week last week. Uh, we had General Synod from Monday oh. to Thursday. Uh, one, one of those days, business began for the laity at 8 a.m., and oh. did not finish until 7.15 p.m. Mm. Um, it wasn't quite that long every day, but it, they were long days. Uh, and then I also had a meeting, uh, if you were listening to the last episode of the podcast, you'll know of the Standing Commission for the Five, uh, looking at the five guiding principles of mutual flourishing on Friday morning. So I didn't get home uh, until Friday evening. I have, however slept quite a lot in the last few days good and received care packages of chocolate and cake and all sorts of things i hope flowers and ready meals so that's been excellent and mini eggs that's great so ros the main thing i guess our listeners will will want to know about and a shout out to all the new listeners who've um been saying nice things about us on social media welcome it's great to have you i hope you enjoy all these podcasts our listeners will be interested in LLF, living in love and faith. And that was a dominant thing in your week, was it not? There were several opportunities and um, uh, places where that was discussed during the week. That's certainly true. Um, Yeah, in fact, as it turned out, every single day of Synod, we had some kind of session uh, dedicated to it. It was was, uh, scheduled for Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, and then the business rolled on, so we had to have some on Thursday as well. But it wasn't the only thing that we were talking about at Synod. There were other debates, uh, some of which were important uh, around safeguarding. That's always on the agenda. The mm. governance review that's ongoing that I I have to say I don't really fully understand, but I know it is important and uh, various important pieces of Uh, legislative business that uh, were not particularly controversial but needed to happen so there was a whole range of things we had for the first time ever in the history of General Synod a loyal address addressed to someone other than her late majesty Uh, so that was obviously addressed to the the king this time Um, I spoke in a debate about resourcing uh, ministerial formation so that's about training so it's, I'm genuinely really excited about this there is now a fund dedicated to paying for training of lay people in the Church of England that has never been the case before and I think that's really exciting and I and saw in the reports in the Church Times that you'd been pushing that particularly I think you did that at a previous synod um, and again this time so that's terrific you've done that and uh, Priscilla uh, the Priscilla program um, would, would thank you for that, wouldn't it? I mean, because of your involvement with Priscilla and other training initiatives in the, the co-workers network, for example, of complementarian women, that lay training thing is really important. 
It is. It's very important to me as a lay person yeah. who has somehow managed to receive enormous amounts of training over the years. But uh, in the speech that I gave, I gave the example of a small child in a Sunday school class who asks you, was Jesus really a person or was he really God? And the thing is, when a small child asks you that kind of question, you have to be able to answer in the moment. There's no good saying, well, I'll go away and think about it. You <laughs> have to give an answer that is simple and clear and true. Mm. And that's, I think, and this is the point I made in synod, quite a lot harder than preparing a sermon, for example, uh, which gained me a little round of a, uh, <laughs> laughter. Um, but I think makes the point quite clearly that actually the things we're asking lay people to do are often things that do require really proper, serious doctrinal and biblical and pastoral uh, yeah. training. Now, one thing that really does require all your theological and pastoral and political nous is discussing LLF. So let's get to that. Tell me, when did that start? You have a presentation from um, the Bishop of London? Yes. Yeah, so on Monday afternoon, we had a presentation from the Bishop of London. It wasn't, I don't think there was any opportunity for questions at that. It's all slightly hazy at this point, but I think she just gave her speech and, and that was it. And it was sort of setting up how things were going to work for the rest of the week, introducing the group work that we were going to have later and so on. It was an, I mean, it was an interesting presentation. Uh, there were a number of things that made my eyes roll or my eyebrows raise, shall oh. we say. One of those that, that came out quite early on in the presentation, she was talking about how even though we've been through this quite lengthy process of shared conversations and living in love and faith and talking together and so on, there still remain really clear and serious disagreements. And she seemed to be suggesting that that was somehow God's fault, that he hadn't given us this Damascus Road moment uh, where we all suddenly realised where we had been in error. Now, I didn't think we were supposed to have been working towards a Damascus Road moment. I thought we were supposed to be listening to uh, each other, certainly, but, but particularly what God has already said. So she seemed to be blaming God for not telling us the truth. Whereas I would say, well, I think God has told us uh, the truth and, and what he wants us to do in this area. And the disagreements seem to be because not everyone is willing to recognize that or submit I can sympathize with her a little thinking you know we're going to set up this several year long process to living in love and faith and and hopefully we'll come to a common mind at the end of it and when we didn't that could be frustrating because if people are praying for unity in the truth and and wanting this to all lead to a positive outcome and then it doesn't I can imagine that they feel somewhat frustrated by that and you're right true. to express that to god you know to say oh lord i wish we had this unity please can you bring us unity but then then to say it i suppose in public as if it's all god's fault that that might be a little bit too far if that's yes and i can see why why that would be frustrating um i think however it was a misunderstanding of the the process in the first place i don't mm. think we're told I can't think, maybe maybe you can, Lee, 
when in in scripture we're told that the way to work out what God is saying is to to do that sort of lengthy process of shared conversations and I don't, I don't know I think, I think we're the, just in in act, and read the, the Bereans Bible, aren't we? no well in in act the Bereans had some conversations together as they looked at the scriptures carefully to see if what Paul was saying to them was true so that's the way to do it we we sit around the scriptures and talk about those and see if we can understand those and yeah so perhaps if instead of all the LLF stuff we'd had like a a bible study guide that Mm -hmm. that might have been more likely to be effective I don't know anyway I I have always giggled when we we see like on the um, very slick and professional video that the bishops produced um, when Stephen Cottrell says on that video we've studied scripture We've looked at the tradition of the church. I'm like, well, when? when? When do we do that? When, in in where in scripture does it actually say any of this stuff that you put forward? Um, tell, tell me yeah. about that video. I'm very interested to know where that. Did you see that video before it went out? Um, yeah. So I mean, the video came out. So there were there were a number of things as we went through synod, uh, looking at this. The video I think came out. We were showing it on the Tuesday. Uh, before we went into our group work so maybe we'll come to that in a minute okay because in between so other things in in um the bishop of london's presentation the the distinction between civil marriage and holy matrimony was one that she brought out there that became a theme in many ways um this idea that asking for god's blessing isn't anything to do with approval (sighs) i don't I don't really understand that at all. Blessing, you know, when we ask for God to bless things or people more mm. usually, mm. that is a signal of our approval. Isn't well, it? If it's it in ask- an official service of the church, you are overtly conveying a sense of approval and legitimacy to the thing that you're trying to bless in a public service of the church. I mean, it's, you know, obvious. We don't, we don't bring in things that we know to be wrong and, or, you know, we don't bless people for their criminal activity or bless them for their Ros, there's honor amongst thieves. Should surely we should honor that honor amongst thieves. And you know, it is a good amongst the mafia that they um are you know have camaraderie and, and look is... after each other. That's a good that we should extract from that um relationship and, and yes. Bless. Yes. So I think what we're discovering is in all this kind of claim of there is no doctrinal change, there is massive doctrinal change in respect of the doctrine of sin. So you and I, Lee, I think hold to uh, the sort of um, five points of Calvinism doctrine of sin of total depravity that that we are all Article um, nine sinful in every respect. But that doesn't indicate that we are as sinful as we could possibly be in every possible way. Yes. Not everything we say is a lie. Not everything we do is destructive and wicked and evil, but that sin infects every part of our being. And I think they seem to have misunderstood that to say that, okay, well, we can find some aspect of this thing which is looked at in the whole as sinful but we can find some aspect of that that isn't as sinful as it could possibly be and bless that so you know it's as if they're saying i think that the reason we used to not bless same-sex relationships 
is because we thought they were all abusive or yes. wicked in some way or deceitful or whatever. And now we've discovered that actually sometimes people of the same sex have relationships where they're nice to each other wow. and they okay. and they, you know, they like each other and, and, you know, sometimes they stay in those relationships for years and years. And, and so maybe we should start blessing them. And it just seems to me to miss the point entirely by simply yes. saying, well, there are some, some quite good things about some of those. Yes, but also there's fundamentally something simple about it. So let's not ignore that. There is love in an adulterous relationship often, you know, a, a man loves his mistress. Um, yeah, there can be certainly, so yeah. What, what, that, that, that could be real love and he could stay with her for many, many years. And that would be a sort of faithful, stable relationship with his mistress. Um, but it's no good saying to God, look, God, I, I faithfully kept on doing that thing that you told me not to. Um, exactly. That's not something exactly. we can actually bless. And I think missing from the, the debate almost entirely throughout the whole week was that debate around what sin is and um what the consequences of it are and why that is so important anyway so the next thing we had tuesday morning we had a question session so there's always a, a session synod members can write in their questions beforehand we get written answers and then there's an opportunity if you want to ask a supplementary question uh, to what's been there they have to be factual questions they're not allowed to be questions of opinion um but you know there's opportunity to raise points there and this time they'd separated out questions on other things and questions on living in love and faith so we had one whole session on that and I have to say it was one of the most frustrating times of the week mm. almost every answer not quite but almost every answer was the proposals are silent the proposals and the prayers are silent on the subject of sexual intimacy that will be addressed in the pastoral guidance. Now, I haven't got it in front of me, but somebody I was sitting next to at one point made a list of all the things we were told were going to be in this pastoral guidance. <laughs> and I think it, he got to 14 or 15 substantive issues that were going to be addressed in this sort of mythical unicorn pastoral <laughs> guidance that will have all the answers in it. You were being asked to welcome in the uh, in the actual discussion. That was one of the exactly. points. Exactly, we were supposed we were supposed to be um, discussing whether we would welcome it. I mean, in in one sense, I do welcome it. I'm really intrigued to see what will be in it and how on earth they will produce this, given all the consultation they've also said they will do in good time. So they, I think they said two months before the next general synod. So that gives them four oh. months. Mm. to produce this piece of work which will answer everyone's questions on everything i mean it baffles me that they they thought they could produce the end product of these prayers without having thought through the fundamental question of sex which they just weren't willing to talk about at all really bizarrely and yeah bizarrely i mean i asked a question there about I think in the, the sort of existing canons, to, uh, it talks about sexual activity and, and they've been using this term sexual intimacy. And so I asked whether they had any sort of working definition of that and they don't. No. Um, so that, but also 
somebody in my group, when we came onto the group work later, said, I think rightly, surely the most sensible way to have gone about this would have been to produce a theological uh, statement of where the bishops are at, then the pastoral guidance which would arise from that, what do we want that to look like in practice? And finally, the prayers which would yes. enable that to happen. Yes. Instead, what we've got is the end product of a set of prayers, which they're not telling us what that's supposed to achieve or who they're supposed to be for or what they're about, let alone any kind of theological justification for mm. how they've got that. Mm. Anyway. It's a so complete it's, rush job, isn't it? It's a rush job and a botch In many job, ways. And in they're basically ways. forcing it through without well, really consulting because as I understand that. it on Tuesday there was a there was a nice slick video shown well so let's come to that so Tuesday afternoon <laughs> was given over to group work we had a session all together explaining what we were doing and then two sessions in our groups and then a plenary at the end and the video was shown as part of the introduction to that and it really wasn't um a good moment in synod because it really did seem to give a sense of fait accompli Thank we you. haven't yet even begun the debate in synod and yet what we had was a whole load of bishops and others telling us what was going to happen that we were going to be walking together in this kind of way and we were really excited that we were going to be praying these prayers and so on so mm. that was a, a definite low point i do think however the group work itself was quite a high point for me in Synod. The groups were facilitated by people not on Synod, people who'd been involved in running LLF courses and so on around the country. They mm. were given pretty strict guidelines on how to run the groups to make sure everybody got to, to say some things. Uh, we talked about the six pastoral principles uh, which are things like pay attention to power, speak into silence. There's something about ignorance hypocrisy. and hypocrisy mm. um, and fear and so on. And actually, certainly in my group, that produced quite a fruitful discussion of how we all felt afraid because the bishops were abusing their power and mm. leaving a huge gap of silence in what they were talking about, which left us ignorant. So that was quite an interesting discussion. But what was the great thing in all of the groups, there were two opportunities for everybody in the group to write down some of their comments. So we were given one piece of paper to write down all our comments on the prayers of love and faith and what we thought might need to be considered as they were redrafted. Um, and then another piece of paper to write down what we thought needed to be covered in the pastoral guidance. Now, that was really great, I think, because it meant that everybody, whether or not they got to speak in a debate or you know, make a contribution in the group work or ask a formal question, everybody got to write down what they wanted to happen at that point. And those you know, 400 and something pieces of paper, I, it's amazing, they were not big pieces of paper, it's amazing how much you can write in a small <laughs> space if, if, you're, if you're determined. Um, so I think that's quite encouraging to me to know that the bishops will have to take that seriously. They're no, about no. Do, do they, Ros? They, they, they've got all this stuff from you. That, that doesn't mean they have to take it seriously. Well, or that they're going to the even groups, read it. In all the groups, uh, there were bishops. One of the bishops in my group did not turn up, but the two who were there were taking very copious notes of all our discussion 
not interfering, asking questions only really for clarification um, and wanting a real understanding of, you know, so I talked at one point about how it'd be great to come to some kind of closure on this issue. And so one of the bishops said to me, what do you think that closure would look like? I think there was a sense of, I mean, obviously some bishops better at this than others. Some have a clearer sense of where they're heading than others maybe. But I'm encouraged that everybody will have had an opportunity to say things. And although you say bishops may not choose to listen to all this, I think given how everything went down in Sunod, and we'll come on to this in a moment, I think they won't just be able to throw, you know, all the 150 pieces of paper from the evangelicals in the bin, for example. Mm -hmm. I just don't think they are in a position to do that. The other thing that was quite interesting in my group, um, we had a number who there who were clearly there in favour of uh, revision and certainly in favour of the prayers. And, you know, I don't know how much further. A good number of those speaking up uh, in opposition to it. Some of those were people who, I don't think got to speak at any other point formally in the chamber, but were terrific in the group work making that point. We also had several quite people quite vocally talking about the most important thing for them being work, walking together and continuing together. And it was just interesting to see how that dynamic was playing out. People really earnestly um, trying to find a way of bringing together two groups who were clearly not together. Anyway, so that was great work. And we had a plenary session, which, you know, wasn't that interesting. But, you know, there were some yeah comments on that. So then Wednesday is where it all starts. It all starts. Well, it can it starts in earnest. There's some big really starts in earnest. Confrontation so there is a moments. motion. Uh, Bishop. Uh, Sarah, Bishop Sarah uh, Mullally, Bishop of London, presents the motion. But as she, even as she is moving the motion, she explains that she is really moving it on behalf of the whole House of Bishops. You can't legally do that, but, um, you know, so it's in her name, but she's saying this is what the whole House of Bishops are presenting, which is interesting. Yeah. Anyway. Then there were, I think there were 27 or 28 amendments to that motion, which have been tabled. Now, we didn't discuss all of those. Um, all but one of those amendments were resisted by the bishop. And if an if a amendment is resisted, there has to be sufficient support from other people in the chamber to allow it to go ahead. And some of them were, were withdrawn and some of them there wasn't support. And so I, don't, I think we have we discussed maybe 18 or 19, something like that. The amendments, many of those were submitted by evangelicals. Yes. Uh, there were two or three that were submitted by revisionists and, and others for different reasons. When we were discussing at the meeting of the evangelical group of General Synod, what amendments we were going to submit and why, there was not a great sense of we are likely to get all of these amendments or even any of these amendments through. And the reason for that is in order to get an amendment through, well, <laughs> normally in Synod, when we vote on something, we all just put our hands up and you can tell. But anyone can ask at any point for a counted vote where we get our electronic devices out and it's recorded who votes. And anyone can ask for a counted vote by houses. So they count the bishop's vote, the clergy vote, the laity vote. It's much harder to get something agreed 
if it has to be agreed in all three houses separately, rather than just a total of everyone who's voting. So on every amendment and the motion, somebody called for a count by houses. Now, given that... That does does give the bishops a little bit more power, doesn't it, Roz? Well, it certainly does. Given that it's a motion from the House of Bishops, effectively, the bishops, every time Sarah Mullally resisted the motion, the bishops voted against it. Not always uh, the whole House of Bishops. There were some who dissented, I think up to 15 uh, voted in opposition to the rest of the, the bishops. But in, every time... At different times during the amendment. At different times Not during the, the amendment. Not on the final motion. Exactly. We're still on the amendments. Yeah. Um, but every time it didn't matter at all how the clergy or the laity voted because the bishops mm-hmm. could just vote it down. And they did. So if there you lose a- it in one house... Uh, bishops, it. clergy or laity, then the whole thing lo- is lost. So if you exactly. call for votes by houses and the bishops get to vote, they will always be able to vote down amendments. Exactly so. So, um, as I said, there were amendments from people on both sides and there was a, a moment on Thursday morning. The debate was scheduled for five hours on Wednesday, took another three hours on Thursday as well. So there was a moment on Thursday morning when Jane Ozan had um, put forward an amendment asking the bishops to bring back proposals for same-sex marriage. And the amendment was defeated, at which point Stephen Hoffmeyer, who is a lawyer and an evangelical on General Synod, made a point of order. It wasn't really a point of order, but nonetheless, he got to say it, (laughs) pointing out that given that this was a, a motion effectively from the House of Bishops, and every time the bishops were voting these down, several times where, for example, the motion would have passed in the House of Laity, um, and I think even sometimes in the House of Clergy, but the bishops had voted out. Anyway, before he was halfway through his point of order, the House burst into applause for the longest round of applause in my time on <laughs> Synod. And he hadn't even got, you know, and he was like, please can I finish what I was going to say? But it was really clear that there was huge frustration um, from people on every side of this debate that the bishops were just exercising this power of veto effectively every time the discussion was happening. And it did feel as though the whole thing, I think, could be construed as abuse of power by the bishops. Just the way that the proposals were so rushed so that people didn't have time to really consider everything we had just over two weeks before synod started um the way that they had chosen not to use certain legal methods that would allow synod greater um input over whether these things were permitted or not um and then the way that they were behaving during the actual debate at every point it felt as though the bishops had decided what should happen And they were going to make that happen no matter what. And, you know, the bishops are not the legislative body of the Church of England. General Synod is the legislative body of the Church of England. Mm. We'd been told, actually, earlier in the week, in response to another question about the vision and strategy by Stephen Cottrell, the Archbishop of York, that, frankly, he didn't think General Synod should have an input into the vision and strategy of the Church of England. We, Sorry, we, say that again, Ros, because our listeners may not quite get the impact of what you're saying. Say that again slowly. 
the, yeah. the Archbishop of York thought yeah. that the legislative body of the church, the General Synod, should not have a say on the vision and strategy of the church, that he should just be allowed to put it forward himself and we should all yeah. do that. So we have had okay. various discussions about allocating money to this or presentations about what it would involve, but we've never had it brought to us as a, a motion to put forward that we could vote in to show our approval of or vote against to show our disapproval of, and then it would have to be changed. It's never been brought for that kind of discussion. And he is frankly fed up with people at Synod asking for that. And this time he told us he didn't even think we yet that we should be involved in that. In the current situation in the Church of England, it is increasingly important for churches to be able to clearly identify themselves as faithful to the Bible, faithful to historic Anglican teaching and faithful on the pressing issues of today, including, of course, matters of gender and sexuality. We hope that identifying as a church society partner church will be an easy way for churches to make that public commitment and to know that they are part of a wider fellowship of churches around the country. Partner churches commit to praying for church society and making a financial donation towards our work. They will have access to a dedicated section of the website full of resources for churches to use and will be able to call on church society staff for advice and support. More information about becoming a partner church is available on our website and by contacting the office. We hope that you will join us in our work of contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. We're hearing a lot of things about the bishops and how they seem to be acting towards us with videos, uh, sort of fate yeah. and plea, with um, veto power being used all the time, pushing through things, not allowing Synod to even discuss major issues of vision and strategy. Um, what is a monarchical episcopate again? Um, uh, you know, is this yeah. something that we... Is this actually how the Church of England should work? It shouldn't really be well, like Well, the, the phrase that, that is often used is um, synodically governed but episcopally led. And I think it was in York Synod last year that Justin Welby said that he didn't really agree with that. And I think we are seeing that the bishops don't really agree with that. I think they think the Church of England should be episcopally governed as well as episcopally led. And yet that is not the legal structure that we have. And it is they very want to turn, concerning. Yeah, they want to turn Synod into just a talking shop that yeah. can advise them and say some things to them, but doesn't actually have any power to decide things. Exactly. And we'll just rubber stamp whatever they've said. And perhaps if people are trying to understand this, imagine at your PCC meeting, if you were never allowed to discuss anything of any significance, and your vicar just brought to you, these are the things that I want us to do. Uh, we can talk about it a bit if you like, but this is what we're going to do. You're going to do it and you're going to pay for it. 
So you clergy you will do all these things. You laity, you're going to pay for all these things. And we're going to decide what those things are. You don't like it tough. Goodbye. And I think you would feel that was an abuse of power. You would think, why have we been appointed to this PCC if we are not allowed to actually discuss and debate and vote on things? But Ros, the elite do know best. Well, if (laughs) if that's what they think, they should make the case. If the bishops think... That, that they know best, then it's up to them to make the case to General Synod for why we should agree with them mm. instead of just constantly voting against us. Anyway, uh, we should move on. So there was one amendment passed. Uh, yes, thank you. We, so there were various other things that were happening during the week that were not sort of formally within Synod. Uh, there were legal challenges using a a thing called the gravamina and reformandum. And this happens um, within the different houses. So the House of Laity one was put forward, the convocation of the clergy uh, from York province, and also one from the clergy in Canterbury province. These met with various degrees of success. None of them uh, succeeded in going forward. It's a way of saying, um, this is something we think has been done wrongly. This is the uh, thing that would put that right. And it can either go forward uh, from an individual or it can go forward from the entire house, the House of Laity or the House of Clergy to be presented to the Archbishop, I believe. It's quite a complicated and uh, novel legal process. There'd never been one previously in the House of Laity and lawyers were very excited about it. It didn't really go anywhere, but it certainly made the point that people were taking this seriously and not letting bishops walk all over them. There was also um, alternative legal uh, advice had been given. So obviously the bishops had consulted the legal office of, I don't know, the Church of England, I guess. Yes. Um, Other lawyers had got together and consulted and uh, involved a, a very eminent QC and suggested that the legal advice might not be quite as sound as first thought and I know at least one person actually changed the way they were planning to vote on the basis of the alternative legal advice um, that had been sought so there were and there were challenges that came through um, in various other ways as well attempting to show that the way the bishops were going about this was not the right way. None of those succeeded in the way that we might have have hoped, but they really made the point that we were not taking this lying down and that the bishops were were really trying to work against the will of the house. Anyway, what actually happened, Ros? What actually happened in the on the on the Thursday Friday? The the debate went over to the Friday as well, didn't it? Yeah. One amendment was passed. It was put forward by Andrew Corns, who is a member of Church Society. And um it was in addition to the original motion um designed to ensure that what the bishops had sort of said they would do was actually enshrined in the motion that everything they would do would be within the constraints of the existing doctrine of marriage of the Church of England. And that was welcomed by Bishop Sarah and it was voted through, as I say, in all three houses. So then we had the amended motion, not very amended, but at the amended motion, there was final debate on that. And then it was um, the motion at that point passed 
it was very close. It was not close in the House of Bishops. I think there were four bishops who voted against it. When will we know who those four bishops were? I'm not sure, but at some point. It might be this week or next week, something like that. I think Jill Duff is one of them. She's come out uh, publicly and said that she wouldn't vote against it, which is terrific. She gave a great interview on uh, TWR, which people can watch. Um, But it it would be very interesting to know which bishops were courageous enough to say, no, I'm not actually going to vote for this motion. Absolutely. And and, um, Bishop Jill, but also... um, Bishop Andrew Watson and uh, I can't remember any of this, but anyway, there were speeches from bishops that that were not wholly in favour of the proposals, and it was really great um, to hear that. So um, the motion was passed. As I say, it was very close, particularly in the House of Laity. I think if six lay people had voted the other way, the motion would have failed. Mm-hmm. So that was very close, and that's one of the things I think we genuinely should be encouraged by it. it is absolutely clear that any vote which would require a two-thirds majority is not going to get through this synod mm. so if any if any proposals were brought forward that did involve a change in doctrine or a change in liturgy for example same-sex marriage that would not get through and i think that means we know we have at least three and a half years until the general synod elections come again where we won't have that on the table. They won't bring it because they know it won't get through. What we have is not great, and I I don't want to downplay that, but I think we should be encouraged that they know they can't go further at this point. There are are other things I really think we should be encouraged by. I know it was very um, hard to watch and people were very upset and people are very angry. And a lot of people are kind of now this is the moment to take action. How can we stay in the Church of England anymore, given that um, this has happened and these prayers are going to be commended? I want to say from the perspective of someone at Synod, it was perhaps more encouraging than than it seemed to those who are watching at home. And I, I want to say there are a lot of things we should be really thankful for. There was really tangible unity we talked about this in our uh, podcast about the CEC conference and that was reflected just as strongly at General Synod tangible unity uh, between those who are opposed to this motion even to the extent that um, on the Thursday morning the prayer meeting that uh, we normally have as complementarian evangelicals we invited not only the wider evangelical group to join us to pray, but also the traditional Catholic group on General Synod to join us to pray. There was a real sense of coming together um, to stand up for what we know to be true um, and working together in all sorts of ways to make that. It felt like 1 Corinthians 12, you know, there were the lawyers doing their loyally thing and there were the prayers praying and there were the people who were just brilliantly gentle and and incisive in the group work. And there were people who'd asked, um, uh, you know, there were some questions and supplementary questions that were just devastating. And the quality of the speeches um, from people on our side was, I thought, phenomenal, really. Really great variety. Some people really vulnerable and honest about their own sexuality and their own uh, celibacy. Some Mm. wonderful speeches, people talking about this in, in, the context of pastoral ministry, um, others making, um, you know, more theological and and um, 
ecclesiological points about this, wonderful speeches about the impact on the Anglican communion. Um, yeah. So just every, I, I really felt on um, Thursday lunchtime, we have nothing to reproach ourselves with. It felt like we'd really brought our A game um, and, you know, that we had not let the Lord down. We hadn't been outplayed. We hadn't been um, caught off guard. We hadn't shot ourselves in the foot. We'd really done this well. So one of the things about the amendments I meant to say, the reason for bringing so many amendments, not because we thought we would get them all through, but partly at least because every time you move an amendment, the person who does that gets to make a speech. Mm. So it guarantees that there will be a good number of speeches um, from a, an orthodox point of view. Um, the person chairing the debate did a tremendous job. I he think. was great, wasn't he? And with a bit he, of humour, and but, but steady and uh, dignified, I thought he did a terrific job. And very fair. So yes. every amendment people standing to speak on the amendment, he, he would ask people to say, are you for this, are you against this, and make sure we had an equal number of speeches in both directions. And so we just had speech after speech, we had the gospel clearly proclaimed, we had God's word clearly proclaimed uh, to the synod and to the watching world. And I think we should, we should really give thanks for that. Um, yeah, so evangelical unity, they can't go further, they won't get a two thirds majority some really great speeches of the gospel proclaimed, but also, and I don't think we want to talk about this in great detail now, but it was encouraging to me to hear several times the possibility of a settlement or some kind of separation or distinction being spoken about, um, not just by people we knew had been already thinking about that, not just by evangelicals, but even the Archbishop of York talking about that. Now, mm. that says to me, this is something that is on the table for discussion. We don't know what that will look like. Negotiations haven't begun. But I do want to encourage you to just... It's hard. I know it's hard. I know there's a lot of people whose instinct will be this is the moment to jump ship. I think if you can hold firm, if you can hold your nose if necessary, this is not, this is not the end game. This is the, the battle is lost, but not the war. And actually, yes. we are in a much stronger position than actually many people thought we might be. There is a lot still to play for. Yeah. There is everything still to play for because we have the Lord on our side. And of course, it's not all going to, um, you know, explode overnight. So uh, I was talking with someone, uh, someone came around for coffee last week who is now at the Anglican Consultative Council meeting in Ghana. And he was going to represent his country. Um, and he said, oh, I've been hearing that you're all about to leave and it's all about to completely reconfigure and, and change in England. Um, so what? how should that affect what I do on the Anglican Consultative Council? And I said, well, there may be one or two individuals who might decide that this is the point where they can stomach it no longer and they leave. And I mean, who could blame them? I totally understand that position. Um, but actually, it's not we're not about to reconfigure and change overnight. There's still even if we would decide to do that now, even if we decided at tonight's Church of England Evangelical Council meeting that we were all going to set up this new thing now, that's going to take several years. So 
you know, there's still a, a battle and a war going on um, for us to fight valiantly over the next few years. Um, all is not lost. And there is still much to play for with hearts and minds and in the legalities. So, Exactly. And I just want to say, if people are wondering what on earth would that look like, there's already some suggestions that have come out from Renew that we uh, link to in our latest newsletter. There will be suggestions coming out very shortly from CEC of things that you can do as individuals, things that you can do if you're a minister, things that you could decide as PCC or uh, within your diocese, if there's a group of you together, at all different sorts of levels. So um, don't give up hope, don't give up fighting, do come and join us uh, at Church Society, uh, and particularly consider um, whether you might become a partner church of Church Society um, as a way of indicating where you stand uh, on this issue Uh, and that you are standing together with a whole network of churches around the country. Yeah, that's great. Uh, There's probably a lot more that we could talk about, Ros, but I think that's enough for for one podcast this week. Please, everyone, do uh, join us for uh, the Church Society prayer meeting on the first Thursday of each month. Please look out for the dates. If you're a Church Society member, there are some church society coffee hours coming up uh so check your emails uh for that so you can find out where, how to hit that zoom link and we we all get together to chat about these sorts of issues and to pray for one another but there's lots that we can still do please be on your knees for the church of england and for those of us particularly like those of us like ros who are on general synod uh lots to pray for if you want to be on your knees for the church of england do join us for 60 days of prayer for the church, which will be beginning on Ash Wednesday. Yay. Uh, we, w- we were planning this as a Lent event for 40 days, but we're going on for 60 days that will take us to the GAFCON uh, conference that's happening in Kigali. There will be a short post every day on the Church Society website encouraging you to pray using the Church Million Collect with a little thought explaining them uh, and what they're about. Terrific. Thank you. Do join us again on the Church Society podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm-hmm.